We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. This is me, Lean, from arsenalvision.co.uk. In today's show, Elliot will be joined by both Tim and Paul to discuss the 1-1 draw at the Emirates against Tottenham. So, a point, a decent point it turned out to be in the end, given our performance, when we're a long way off our best. Tottenham actually were the better side for long periods of the game, which is not a very nice thing to be saying. But, we managed to come back and get the equaliser when, in years gone by, after a Champions League game not playing our football, we often lose these games, so that can be a positive to take from this one. I think the reason why we had a bad performance is this. Agree or disagree, but injuries are taking their toll. Last few weeks, we have to play the same players over and over again. Not only that, played against teams like Bayern home and away, Everton at home and Swansea away. All teams who like possession. So it's been a hard few weeks, a lot of running, a lot of chasing, a lot of harrying, and we've done well, mostly from Bayern away but let's not talk about that one anymore but to come back into the game and get the goal and actually push on and try and get a winner was, was actually quite a, quite a good positive when you're not playing well we've seen the same players beat Bayern Munich at home beat Man United convincingly so there's a lot to come from this team you know we're going to have off days can't be our best every week can't beat everybody so it's good that we've got the characters Wenger said to um, come back into the game long may that continue more importantly Get our players back fit. After the break, we've got a few players back, which is good. Ramsey, Oxley, Chamberlain and Bellerin, is it? Fingers crossed we don't lose any more because we need to get everyone back into the squad and not lose any more players because yeah, it's a bit scary at the moment. Our bench is a bit frightening. But there's a lot of players to come back. Hopefully they'll come back soon. 
I've said that a few more times, haven't I? But anyway, let me pass over to the guys. Enjoy the podcast and back after the international break. It's an absolute battering that leaves everything in rubble, and we're wondering how to pick up the pieces. But enough about the toilets. Let's talk some football. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. We'll get to uh, the destruction of the away toilets, I'm sure, at some point. But let's talk football, at least while uh, it's enjoyable or partially enjoyable. Because we've got two weeks to think about what was the North London Derby over the weekend. Um, I am here with Paul and Tim. James thinks that having a career is somehow more important than being a regular on a podcast. So we'll see if he still feels that way. Yeah. What was that, Paul? Oh, nothing. Nothing at all. Nothing. Okay. Um, all right. Well, that is Paul. You can find him on Twitter at Posnan in my pants. Hello, Paul. And Tim is uh, on Twitter at Stilberto. You can read him on Ars Blog along with several other places. Uh, he follows the Arsenal home and away. We're happy to have him on the podcast once again. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Okay, so it was obviously the, the North London Derby is always a big match. And given the fact that City had dropped points, it was a chance to go uh, top of the table all alone on our own going into the international break that didn't happen. We, we drew it home and it's the same result we had last season, but under very different circumstances. And obviously the lineup that we had to put out there was not ideal. So let me start with you, Paul, given the exertions in midweek and how we looked in midweek, um, would you have been tempted to mix it up and maybe try to get Flamini in there from the start instead of Campbell or maybe use someone other than Debushi or did, would you have done exactly what the manager did, which is just stay unchanged? So I would say, like, it was frustrating, frustrating, frustrating. There's no two ways about it for the reasons you said. And a win would have taken us top. But that's the lineup line I would have put out there. Uh, I mean, this was battle-tested. Yes, they had a rough day against Byron, but I was kind of hoping they'd take that from, uh, you know, all that pressure they absorbed against that against Byron, all that high press and all that counter pressing that they uh, absorbed and face a Spurs and say, well, this is a, this is kind of a, a poor man's version of the same thing and pull out a performance. Uh, and I think for reasons we'll get into, we can kind of pick apart why that didn't quite happen, but that's what I was hoping for in terms of the line out. And that's what I was hoping to see in this game. And to some extent, it was what we saw on the first maybe 18 to 20 minutes. I mean, a reasonable performance, if no great finishing intent. So I think I'm okay with the lineup. Yeah, I mean, I think the the only challenge for me is, obviously, we we saw what a pressing team can do to this lineup. And, and, you know, I I know that we got away with it at Swansea, who now are even looking to... potentially sack their manager. And Tim, you called this one in a previous podcast that they really haven't been very good. So I don't know how much we learned from that game, but I think there would have been a temptation if I were a manager and thank God I'm not um, to try to get an extra midfielder in there. Um, I'm not convinced that Coughlin and Cazorla work as a pair without an extra midfielder, but with a true winger. Um, we'll get to Cazorla in a minute. So I don't want to go down that road just yet, Tim, but for you, um, would you would you have looked to possibly mix up the the starting eleven and possibly get another midfielder in the lineup? Um, yeah, I would have um, just because it, we know exactly how Pochettino's teams play, and uh, even when he was at Southampton, we suffer 
against uh, his teams. They're, you know, he, he's kind of got Wenger's number in a way, I think, in that respect. And we don't really seem to have a great deal of answer to it. In, in fairness, on this occasion, um, I know we'll go into Cazorla in a minute, but I mean, him being not well was a massive, massive miss when you've got a team that presses as hard as Spurs do. Him being able to dribble out that pressure is crucial and he just couldn't do it. And the other thing we didn't have was pace in behind and none of our options really gave us that. I, I would have been tempted to put another midfielder in instead of Joel Campbell. And I know we've spoken about this before on the podcast, the way that Ramsey comes in off that right-hand side and really he turns it into more of a 4-3-3 and becomes an additional midfielder. Um, it, in fairness, it's difficult to see exactly how you do that. Do you play Cazorla on the right? Do you just play Flamini on the right and you know ask him to tuck in? I, I don't really know. It's, it's a difficult one. Maybe had Arteta been fitter earlier, he might have been um, a decent option against a team like that. But then again, he's suffered against teams that press very hard. So I, I would have been tempted um, to put somebody in there um, to make it an additional body in midfield. And actually, Flamini made a difference when he came on um, by, by kind of being that extra body. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in fairness, Arsenal—I think Arsenal—made fifty tackles during the game, which was almost twice as many as Spurs. Um, I mean, that tells you that Spurs dominated the ball quite a lot. But you know, we, we know how they play. They press us very, very high. Um, and again, I suppose in fairness, Flamini was at fault for their first goal last year because he suffered from the high press and they dispossessed him kind of high up the pitch. So. I, I think I would have been tempted, but I, I completely understand the manager's predicament. He just didn't really have the options to to do that. And, and it's difficult to see exactly how that would have worked, but it did kind of look like... Um, you know, you I could have used on the Bayern, Yeah, you know, like I said on the Bayern podcast, I thought this would be a draw. And the reason I thought it'd be a draw was because I just thought it'd be a game too far for exactly the same starting eleven to try and do exactly the same thing. And it did just kind of look like the manager just, you know, put his foot on the accelerator, closed his eyes and hoped for the best, really. But Mm -hmm. could he really have done anything else? I don't know. And can I add quickly? um, um, Sorry, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then I'm not going to bother it now. Um, I mean, to me, there was a lot of talk about how their tactics beat our tactics and stuff, but really just a more energetic performance, a, a healthier Cazorla. And I think the whole narrative becomes different. I mean, I think as well, you know, history is written by the winner and Spurs were kind of the winner, although it was a draw on the day because maybe they overperformed at our place. But you can go back through phases of that game, especially the first 20 minutes. I mean, so um, here's your favorite moment of the podcast. On your uh, second Elliot. watching, why don't you tell us what when you saw? I, when yeah. I watched it the second time, um, I heard the Adrian Clark commentary. And his comment when they scored the goal was, well, that came out of nowhere. Um, they really haven't threatened so far this game. And when I went back and looked at it, uh, you know, there was the the cross in from Danny Rose into the six yard box that, that checks scooped up. And there was the header, uh, off the back post for, I think Dyer for that, uh, for Ericsson's free kick into the box where we didn't mark. And that was kind of what they produced before the goal. And, and we'll talk about the goal itself, but 
really we gave them a massive helping hand with that goal. So, well, you know, it, 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 a goal changes everything. It changes the narrative. And some more energy and a fit Cazorla, um, you know, we might we might be a lot more comfortable with, with our approach maybe. and our game. I, I think in general, and, and I know this is a sweeping generalization, but it's just from watching us play like this for a while now. I don't think the Cazorla Coughlin axis in midfield works when we use true wingers on both sides. When we have Alexis and Ox or Alexis and Joel Campbell, I think it requires that extra man to come into midfield, especially if we get pressed, um, especially the way Ozil wants to move and get into space. And we just don't have those triangles. We don't have that out ball. I don't think we have people that are available for the ball as much. And when they pressed Cazorla and pressed Coughlin yesterday, it was effective. There wasn't that out ball. And some some of that I think is well, down. I do I do agree with that, Elliot. I just didn't see that we had the options. No, no, I, to I totally in. understand. I mean, it, yeah, yeah. look, okay. the options we had yeah. were far from ideal, and we're in that situation in general right now. Um, I thought this was a game of three parts, and I think the portrayal of this game as Spurs battering us is sort of true, but not true in this respect. The opening stanza of the game was wide open, counterattack after counterattack. It was basketball on a football pitch. The second stanza of the game was them battering us and us really not coming to terms with their press and them getting really getting after us and, and causing us problems. And then the third stanza of the game after we made all the changes was us battering them and looking like the team that could go on to win it. Um, I think the, the question I have for you, Tim, before we get to their goal in the middle stanza, the stanza where they battered us, was why was it so open initially, and did we really blow it? I, you know, on watching the first ten or fifteen minutes again, we had three or four big <laughs> counterattacks. No, no, no. I didn't watch the whole game again. I watched just ten or fifteen minutes of the game again. Okay, um, and I didn't even do that. I'm just saying I did. Um, on pretending to watch the first fifteen minutes a second time, Tim. Right, you know, we had so many counterattacks that just the final ball wasn't there. Um, what do you attribute that openness to in, in the beginning? And was that really our chance to take the game by the scruff of the neck and totally change what happened after that? I think so. Yeah, I, mean, I, I remember my <clears throat> my kind of my conversation with the guys I sit with like, after that first time. I mean, it's so open. Um, you know, it's really, really end to end. And um, we the were neutral, kind of who everyone hates, must have enjoyed that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were saying, well, isn't Joel Campbell in some space? Isn't, you know, isn't Giroud in some space? Like, everyone just seemed to be in some space. And um, I don't know if that's just, like, the occasion kind of taking over. I I tend to think that's what it was. Uh, This was a really rare occasion where I actually got into the ground early enough to see Arsene Wenger's interview on the big screen beforehand when he announced his lineup. I'm never usually in that early. But he said, you know, we know that Tottenham are a threat on the counter-attack. And then I watched that first 10 minutes and I thought, did you tell the players that? Because, like, this game is just wide open. And uh, I've got no idea why it started like that. But from the point of view of either teams, I, you know, I tend to think Arsenal might have thought the blueprint was what we did against Manchester United. Um, and perhaps we just didn't quite have the legs to do what we did against Manchester United, but that was kind of the intention, which might explain why we were so open. For Spurs, I think maybe my, my big hope for this game was that even though we had three tough t- games in eight days, they had three in six, and they worked very, very hard. If you look at the figures for distance run, Tottenham are, are way out. 
um, kind of since Klopp's taken over at Liverpool, the gap's closing, but Spurs run more than any other team. And I thought, well, maybe the last 15, 20 minutes they'll get a bit tired. And maybe they knew that as well. And maybe they thought, you know, look, we know what happens when Arsenal go 1-0 ahead. Um, they don't tend to lose. And actually, we might get a bit tired in the last 20 minutes so if we can, you know, try and score the goal now. And, and maybe that was it. Maybe just both teams thought they stood a better chance. They both thought they'd be tired and they thought they stood a better chance um, by scoring early. And for Arsenal, the blueprint... Um, the blueprint was really there uh, from the Manchester United game. So that, that's my only explanation for how it started as it did. I think well, also the ahead. fact that our midfield, for the reasons we talked about, was more open than we would want yeah. it to be, yeah. uh, led, led to both, you know, allowed them to counter us and then for us to counter them. I think uh, those two things combined, that kind of... the the. Uh, the atmosphere and the drive to get the first goal, as Tim talks about, and the fact that we couldn't really control our own midfield. And, and the one thing I would say is, I think I thought our the first stanza, to use your terminology, I think we had the upper hand, although there was risks on both sides. Mm-hmm. So I could see, I see, I can see why we were okay with that for a while, because we looked man most likely to score for 20 minutes. Uh, although there were risks both ends. so uh, But I definitely think our inability to control our own midfield, uh, not all for the bad, uh, left to a, a very open game for both sides. What about Cazorla, Paul? I mean, uh, this is an interesting one for me because the manager sounded like a man who was searching for an answer. I, I, don't, I don't know how to take this. He was really, really bad in the first half. They targeted him and it worked. He just had a really bad performance. Um, sometimes that happens. You're just bad. The manager said, you know, he was dizzy, and he didn't I know what to do. I think the flu. Yeah. Do we know? I, I think there was something right. wrong with him. I, do, but yeah. isn't, I mean, okay, again, I'm not saying there wasn't something wrong with him. Um, it it was just a very weird explanation. Watching the interview after the match, he, he sounded like he was just trying to come up with something. I mean, if something was wrong with him to that extent, um, are you surprised that we even started with him in the first place? Was it one of those cases of we just really didn't have – an alternative we felt comfortable with. What did you make of so, And by the way, I want you to also talk a little bit about just how he performed in that first half and how that impacted our, our overall performance as a team. Yeah, you see, he was in a mixed bag because when I watched it the second time, um, he was actually pretty good at certain times going forward. I mean, he was still Cazorla when he wasn't like... But, but any time I saw him up front, he looked like a guy suffering from the flu. Um, Kelly Wood on Twitter suggests he might have an inner ear problem. Because, you know, the, uh, all, all Dr. Wenger could say was there was nothing wrong with him, but he was dizzy. So that's, that was her solution for it. I, I was kind of thinking flu. But, I mean, he looked a bit funky before the game. Uh, he looked out of it during the game. Um, the, the number of times he, he was, like, in slow motion when pressed, to me there was something wrong. And if there wasn't something wrong, we'll give him one game off. Uh, but, I mean, how many times has Wenger ever substituted anybody at halftime? Yeah, uh, he I mean, always give them the chance to recover. That's why it was, you know, I, I almost felt like he had to have an excuse. You know, he, he didn't want to make Cazorla look bad, so having something be wrong with him was a better answer. But he could have just been wiped out and not on his day. I mean, Tim, what, what do you think? Something genuinely wrong with him? And, and if so, I mean, how? I, I, it's funny because I thought he was poor. 
but it wasn't like he was falling down on the pitch and misplacing simple passes. I mean, he got dispossessed a few times and he, and he, he was struggling, but was he, you know, did you notice as you were watching him that he looked, something was ter- terribly wrong with him? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, I, I definitely, for, first off, I'd take it on face value just because all of that's unprecedented uh, as far as I'm concerned, that performance from him. So um, It's funny, it's by a, the way, just real quick, not to interrupt, but that's kind of what I do. Um, it just yeah. goes to show you how on social media everybody has to be an asshole. Like, <laughs> like so I, I made the tweet, you know, Cazorla uncharacteristically sloppy yeah, yeah. so far this game. Which I think is a fair statement, but just you know, fair. everybody has to be pissed off all the time. I'd like a few people uncharacteristically. Have you even watched him this season? You know, like <laughs> it, it's just you know. Look, I'm the first person to get on someone's case. You know me. I love to get negative. It's like my favorite thing in the world. But but like you can't. Everybody's got to be an asshole. It's just the craziest thing. Anyway, go on. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, there's that to it, and and like Paul says, when does he ever hook? Like, if he didn't hook Callum Chambers at half-time against Liverpool, like, you know, this is the way he thinks about this a lot. I think he did to Bellerin against Stoke, and I can't think of too many, too many other examples. But um, I, I did notice there was a point, probably on about 35, 36 minutes or something like that, where um, the ball bounced in the air between him and Deli Alley, and, um, mm-hmm. and he completely misjudged the flight of the ball, like, like almost like he couldn't see it properly, and it was one of those where he—I mean, I know he's not a tall guy, but I mean, it was—it bounced in his favour, and he like took a step past the ball, and kind of Ali ran off with it, and uh, someone gave him an incriminating look, and I just saw him signal. He did the almost like um, almost like the psycho thing, you know, with it, like put his fingers round his ears. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I thought, "What? What does he mean by that?" But I can only presume he meant like you know, either his vision was compromised or the the, the idea of an inner ear problem. Um, when you said that, Paul, that really rang a bell with me. I instantly remembered. Like, I, I didn't remember that incident at all until you said that, and I thought, mm. "Yeah, I remember him going up for a header, completely misjudging it, and then just giving some kind of symbol to I think it was Erzul or something, just as if to say like." Sorry, but I'm all uh, fucked up. Yeah, I can barely see kind of thing. So um, I mean, I think it absolutely was that. And and again, like, had we had anybody fit, then maybe he wouldn't have played. Um, but you know, again, maybe even if Arteta was slightly fitter, he might even have taken that decision. But yeah, I, what what I would say too is, if you were going to drop a worst case scenario for me against a Pochettino team, it would be for Cazorla to be unwell. Yeah. Because yeah. he is... Out. Well, and, and also, I mean, okay. he, he's our deepest... He, there A lot of times he was actually the deepest lying midfielder because he was collecting the, <clears throat> the collecting the ball from central defense. So when they pressed him, mm-hmm. he was just turning it over. It was, it was a worst-case scenario. Um, and actually, damn, I, back, damn yeah. Elliot, I missed a chance to jump in when you coughed there. Well, thank God I did that. But I was going to say, if there was one player you don't want to have an inner ear problem, is probably probably uh, given the speed at which he does a three sixty and the frequency. So the guy, the guy uh, that was really the guy who's tasked with breaking the press is not a guy you want yeah. to be disoriented. Um, so all right, let, let's move on just quickly to their goal. I mean, it it was really one of these situations where, to me. It's everything wrong with how you play 
how you organize yourself defensively against a team like that. It's no on the ball pressure. It's a really crazy positioning decision by Murtisacker and then a last ditch effort to salvage it by stepping up from Koscielny. I saw a lot of people in social media and the media generally criticizing Koscielny here. But Paul, for me, this is a decent amount of the blame for for that goal goes to Joel Campbell for me. The majority of it goes to Murtisacker. Tell me how you saw it. Okay, well, I'll give it back to you really quickly because I saw it a bit differently. I do put the blame on Koscielny. I, I right, recognize well, that's wrong, the two things. You, why. Uh, okay, I recognize the two the two other contributing factors, but I think that goes on all over the game all the time, and we only pick it apart when there's a goal. And the reason there was a goal is Koscielny has a has a momentary lapse of concentration, maybe no been out for a game or two. No blah, blah, blah. So uh, I think you can understand my point. I do understand uh, it. I, I vehemently disagree. disagree with it. Uh, all right, so, uh, uh, so two things. First well, of all, let me, just, yep. let me just, before I hand it back then, the number of times that a player has the space that Danny Rose has to make a pass in a game from those positions is legion in every game, in every situation. You don't want it to happen, but it does happen. It just doesn't generally result in a goal. All right, so, so really quickly. First of all, if you're going to play a high line, you can't give players space on the ball at, in that position. And we saw it just a week ago against Swansea when Shelby put Gomez through. Now, Shelby rode a tackle and got through, but then he had acres of space to play that pass. That's an easy pass for a professional footballer because there's 60 yards behind the defenders. You have a guy in Murtisacker who's never going to chase anyone down. All you have to do is play it into that space. So it's a pretty easy ball. Now, I thought Rose's ball was pretty good, but Campbell gives him tons of time. He doesn't close him down at all. And then Murtisacker, and we've seen this from him, he doesn't want to run. He doesn't want to have to cover the space behind him. So he steps up. He steps way up, and he steps to Erickson, who's not the threat. Okay, now Koscielny's got problems because now he has two players. He's got Kane, and I can't remember who's the guy who was on the, on the far side with Kane. Do either of you guys remember the one who was opposite Kane? Yeah. Lamella, right. So he's got Kane and Lamella in the middle of the pitch, and he's responsible for both of them now because Perez stepped to the right and stepped up to Erickson. Koscielny's got a problem. I can drop deep and defend two on my own, or I can try to step up here and ride the line that Murtisacker has just established and hope that we can play offside. So Murtisacker puts him in a position where he's either got to step up or step back and defend two. And he, he chose the one that he thought he could could pull off, and he, and he didn't. I think if he steps back there, Rose still plays the pass to Kane, and now it's Kane and Lamella in on goal with only Koscielny to beat. I, I, you know, I mean, maybe that's preferable, but to me, where Paris, and, and Joel's is, a, is, Joel's is bad. He should press the ball, but to your point, you're right that sometimes that doesn't happen. Murtis Ackers is inexcusable. I thought he was poor throughout the game. Uh, there was a shot in the game, too, where he just sort of turned to the side and, and didn't try to block it. He's not looking his best now, and I think he's reaching a point where in games where we defend deep, he's still hugely beneficial as a leader and because and he's, he's, he's a good mind defensively. Um, we saw that at home against Bayern. But in games where we're not defending deep, he's a liability, and he takes that easy way out too often of stepping up instead of stepping back. Tim, for you, how did you see the goal and, and what did he make of, of maybe Murtisacker in general right now and how he's playing in these kinds of games? Um, the goal itself, it, it just kind of feels like an amalgamation of a lot of things we've seen this season. So 
Um, you're quite right to pick out this. This is basically Gomez's chance given to Harry Kane. It's just Harry Kane is in halfway competent form and put it away. He's um, a good finisher. I mean, you have to give him yeah, that. That's yeah. kind of what he does. And and that's three games in a row now where we've got the offside trap wrong. Gomez, um, Lewandowski and Kane. Um, so that's not really working. Um, the other thing that's happening quite easily, I think, is... Um, and I think this is probably just a symptom of fatigue and having Joel Campbell on the right who doesn't really fit in in any serious way and having to change the fullback as well. But actually, in the last three games, um, teams against us have had a lot of joy in that channel between fullback and centre-half. Um, and it just felt like a kind of culmination of all of those things at once. The other thing I'll say, though, is that, you know, in terms of... Um, Lauren Koscielny, some of his defending this season has been worryingly cumbersome. I don't want to say lazy, but when you think back to the beginning of the season and, you know, the Crystal Palace goal where he kind of turned his back on it, the West Ham goal, he turns his back on it. Um, there were a few things yesterday where he kind of got pulled into that position and he was a bit cumbersome, you know, with the offside trap on this occasion. And it's a bit, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit concerning, I think, um, Koscielny as well as Mertesacker. I think neither of them is at the top of their game. The other thing to say as well, I think, is that um, like one thing that Christian Eriksen does very, very well is he makes brilliant decoy runs off the ball. He makes a lot of space for Harry Kane. And um, if you look back at, I think, Spurs beat Chelsea 5-3 last season at some point. And basically, all that happened in that game was that Ericsson knew Fabregas wouldn't pick him up. And all he kept doing was, without the ball, he kept just running over to the flanks just to take John Terry away. And because John Terry, like Per Mertesacker, isn't quick enough to get back, he just kept like walking away and just leading John Terry away and leaving all this space for Harry Kane. He kind of did that on this occasion. You've got Debussy coming back into the team not really as familiar with the setup. You've got Joel Campbell on the right, not really as familiar with the setup. So the relationship between the kind of the wide and central defensive areas is, is not great. And mm-hmm. um, there's there's some gaps there. And on you know on top of that, the offside trap's not really working. And they've all been guilty. That's that's the kind of worrying thing. Gabriel was guilty in Munich, and Koscielny and Mertesacker, I think, were both culpable for this one. Mertesacker for going this so it's it's there's something just not quite functioning there and whether it's just you know personnel making things a bit unfamiliar i'm not sure but i think there are some slightly worrying signs there yeah i and i hate to do this while we're recording but tim if you could next time with questions like that maybe be just a little bit more ranty and a little less erudite that would be greatly appreciated (laughs) just hashtag brand you know what i mean um so okay that is a fantastic answer by the way and i think that's a good observation about what erickson's role was I, i think we we have the issue that Mertesacker is the right-sided central defender and he's not getting a lot of help on the right side from his fullback and his right wide player right now, too. Um, you know, we've seen Bellerin tuck in and help Mertesacker and Ramsey press the ball and keep him out of, out of harm's way. But that right side, that Mertesacker, Debushi, Campbell side is just a field day to play yeah. in behind right now. Um, if you're Mertesacker and you lack a bit of pace and you've got Hector Bellerin, you know, 10 yards to your right, that helps as well. Yeah, so 
up, Paul, let's, I, I want to talk Giroud at some point because I haven't had a chance to really lambaste him for weeks, so it's, you know, it's festering. Um, but before we get to him, um, let's talk about the changes and how they change the game. And if you're Joel Campbell and your team desperately needs a goal and you get hooked for a fullback, how are you feeling right now? <laughs> uh, probably tired. He, uh, I never know any player who looks more exhausted than him after about 15 minutes. Um, I think, I mean, I think part of it is he's the most junior member. I think he's probably a bit shattered because he hasn't really played at this this level and this intensity and this frequency. Um, so he's pro- overall, I'm sure he's just probably okay being involved and being called upon, which That's might a fair be point. about <laughs> which 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 might be about to come to a rude halt. Is this is, is he going to get a participation trophy? <laughs> Uh, yeah, <laughs> one of those American-style seven-foot-tall trophies for yeah. for being there. Yeah. But um, so you know, I, I think that's why he gets yanked. He, he'll probably be okay about it. Kidding aside, probably, though, what did you think of the changes and and how it imp- impacted the game? Well, uh, in no particular order. I always like the gig Gibbs substitution. I know you're not high on him as a fullback, and, and that's I don't another like debate. that substitution when we're defending a game. You know what I mean? This is the first time I can remember yeah. him doing the bring on all the fullbacks move when we're chasing a game. Well, I can remember when he brought him on defensively and we ended up attacking with him, and that's happened quite a lot. He's actually... Uh, I, I mean, I'm not going to go on about how he's a wonderful, brilliant player, blah, 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 because I don't want to get you all fired up. But no, I think Gibbs he's good in the attacking half. I, I do think yeah, he's good I, in the attacking I, half. I think the Gibbs thing works for us because at the end of the game, you do, uh, to use uh, Wenger's line, you don't want to lose the game. Um, if you can't win it, you don't want to lose it. But conversely, Gibbs kind of uh, allows you a play, a, a kind of a a uh, modified gamble in both directions because as we as we I think we've often seen he's quite attacking quite effective uh, probably against tired legs he looks particularly effective as anybody with a bit of pace would um, and defensively he gives you something for, so for me I always kind of cheer up when Gibbs is one of those substitutions Flamini had his his usual well I I think that tackle he put in really early on he had a two-footer that apparently wasn't a two-footer. I'd like to have got a better view on it that uh, got stuck into them and gave them a bit of their own me- medicine. I mean, they were pretty rough and tough with their tackling and pretty, uh, you know, they uh, they skirted the line a few times, particularly in the first half, which everybody seems to applaud. So anyway, back at you with Flamini. God bless him. Mm-hmm. I thought Cockland's tackle- tackling while we're on that to- topic, some of those tackles he put in, and some of his tidying up was really good, though it goes a bit under the radar because it doesn't fit with the overall narrative that they were the one handing it out. Um, so Flamini definitely gave us something, but in a way that was maybe the most open period of the game where I felt we were, like where you guys were higher on spurs for that first stand, as you put it. You know, I really felt we had the upper hand in that. But no, I Flam- thought we Flamini were better coincided. in the first stanza. I thought it was yeah. the second stanza where we got battered. Yeah, and Flamini, I think, was a, you know, that was that was his time. I wouldn't put it on him necessarily. We'd a game to chase to that point. Uh, but you'd see him defending. You'd see him in midfield. You'd see him in the six-yard box. You know, that's the new Flamini. So 
that's he's kind of a roll your dice player at the moment. So uh, he certainly spiced it up, but he also made it more open, I think, for good and bad. I, you know, sometimes I think we want to see correlation, and sometimes correlation is there, and sometimes it's a false correlation. Tim, here's a question for you, uh, because that's how this works. I ask you a question, you answer it. Um, uh, so we we make all these changes, and in the last 15 or 20 minutes of the match, I felt like we were really on top of them. I think you'd agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but is this a case of the changes really working? And I know Gibbs did a really nice job uh, scoring the equalizer, but is this also potentially just a case of for a pressing team that played Monday, Thursday, Sunday, were they always going to be vulnerable in the last 20? How much was it the changes, and how much was it that they had no legs left the last 15 after playing Monday, Thursday, Sunday? I mean, everyone wants to talk about how shattered we were, but we had a lot of players out there that, first of all, don't play a lot, but also we went Wednesday, Wednesday, Sunday. They went Monday, Thursday, Sunday. So what, what do you think of that? Um, I, I think they were always going to get tired. Yes, I think I think it was a kind of um, like economies of scale effect between us scoring and them tiring. And you could see straight away after after we equalised, you know, every throw in was taking a minute, and they were stealing time with the ball and the rest of it. You could see, um, as well as physically, mentally, they they were preparing themselves for for something of an onslaught. And to be fair, we had had a few chances from set pieces um, from for Giroud and the rest of it. So I, I'm not convinced it was... I think Flamini made a bit of a difference. Um, although, was he at right back by the time we scored? I yeah. can't really remember. No, yes. I, no. Oh, wait, no, when we scored? No, I don't think so. Yeah. No, okay. I don't think so. I mean, you know, Gibbs gave um, Kyle Walker something else to think about, um, I suppose, and... He injected some pace, and that really helped um, because we just didn't have any uh, really in the team other than Alexis. But Alexis, we looked like a really slow squad. Yes, uh, yes, yeah. didn't we? And, and Alexis isn't really someone who bursts in behind. He's quick with the ball at his feet, but he doesn't really get on the shoulder of defenders and use that pace. So, you know, Gibbs gave us um, a good option in in that respect as well. And it was it was a very nicely taken goal, I think. Um, Am I wrong in thinking he had a chance just before that he didn't take? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah you're right. Um, so so it's almost like they just they you know they I I can't imagine that when Spurs were doing their meticulous game plan that they really went into like they had a, a file for Kieran Gibbs as it were <laughs> as a so maybe there's, there's that element um, to it. Um, but I, I think really, I think the changes made a little bit of a difference. But really, I think it was Spurs were always going to tire, and we got that goal, which you know, like made it almost psychosomatic for them that they were going to get tired. Both teams approached the first ten to fifteen minutes of the game like they knew they were going to run out of steam. So then we've got the momentum, and they haven't, and we're at home, and the crowd's up, and the rest of it. And uh, they were, you know, they were really happy with the point once the equaliser came. So I'm not convinced, you know, that the changes really made this huge, significant difference, save for the fact that a substitute got the equaliser. But I think it was more, maybe Gibbs was a little bit of an unknown quantity to them. And once we got that goal, the tiredness kicked in and it was just a a slight mixture, really. Um, But I'm, I'm not convinced, you know, the game was won from the bench, per se. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's uh, let's get to the important part of the podcast where we talk about Olivier Giroud, and I lose my shit. Um, 
So, look, I believe that Olivier Giroud has actually done pretty well the last few weeks. You'd be an idiot if you didn't think so. Um, and I do think that as a second option off the bench, he's showed that he, he really can deliver. This was not his finest performance. And the problem with Giroud is conversion percentage. It's always been his problem. He misses more big chances than anyone else in this season. He's missed more big chances than anyone else in the Premier League. And that's a killer. Um, because when you create big chances, you have to put them away. And he fails to put them away more than anybody else in the league. Um, Paul, I'll let you take the first shot at analyzing him. And look, we don't have to kick dirt on the guy, but tell me what you thought of his performance overall. And is this an area where, once again, you know, we go back to the question of did we, did we leave ourselves enough quality at the striker position going into the season? Um, so his performance overall, I think my biggest issue with him was really about our front, our front three. Um, and that for me, kind of for the reasons you guys talked about in terms of we like that kind of Ramsey option. This three, you don't have anybody who's going to get in behind. The only person who was going to get in behind was Ozil, and we didn't control the midfield enough. We, if we'd had, because when, when I go to my, uh, my favorite thing I love to do when I look at passing numbers and stuff, you know, there was no point in looking at it this week without Santi on his game. What you really wanted to see was, Santi with high numbers to Ozil and to Sanchez and that giving Ozil the chance to, to make those runs in behind and stretch the defense. Not because that's something you want from him all game long, but he was the only one of those players who was going to get in behind. In terms of Giro overall, I actually thought he had a decent game, okay. all things considered. Hang on, hang on. Now, your point on conversion, yes, he's not, he's not the most converty, but your point on big chances... <laughs> he makes a lot of big chances for himself. A lot of those come from him being a really tall bloke who, once they stopped having two guys pulling his shirt and pulling him to the ground, uh, broke free of them three times with great opportunities in front of goal, uh, when we didn't seem to be able to conjure up anything else, any other route. You know, you, you kind of got to balance it out. He's, he's not my favorite striker on the planet. I think he's a great one, too, with, with Walcott. Walcott was what we really needed yesterday. Uh, but I didn't think he had a bad game, apart from his misses. Apart um, from being the striker, whose job it is to convert big chances and failing to do that over and over and over again, I thought he was fine, too. Well, hang on. Well, come on now. He scored a lot. How many goals has he scored? If you want to go on... I, I'm, not ta- I'm not talking about what he did before. Scored. I'm just talking about what he did yesterday. Okay, but if you want to talk about yesterday, he had a good game, but he didn't convert. That happens to a lot of strikers, though. Mm, he, and and if you want to go to, oh, well, conversion rates, uh, well, you know, that's a big deal across the season. If you look at his, I, I don't have the stats, if you look at his last five, six, seven games, he scored a lot of goals. So, he, he has and he creates worst, a lot of big chances. Worst conversion percentage of big chances in the Premier League. Yeah, that's but he not, scores a lot great. of goals. I look, I, again... Goals, I don't hate the guy goals as a secondary win option. Goals in seasons, conversion rates don't. No, so, well, that, but, but they do in this. They do in the sense, right, that a team can only create so many chances, and your striker needs to, at a minimum, put away. Well, let's not argue about it. I, I think yesterday was not his finest day, and he he, he missed chances, and and it hurt us. Yep. Um, I, I I've always said I don't have a problem with Giroud as a secondary option, and I. Look, he is a secondary option. Our first option is injured. Um, 
So maybe this is unfair. He's not our starter anymore. He's our backup striker, and it didn't work for him yesterday. Tim, let me add a couple of things because you've you've chronicled this at length. Um, First, maybe just generally what you thought of Giroud and the frustration of some of the missed chances. And then also um, the impact Giroud's having on Alexis because everyone just assumes Alexis is leggy, and and that's the problem. But – he didn't look leggy when Theo was in there. So maybe a little bit on Giroud and then a little bit on something you've talked at length about online, which is the Alexis Giroud axis. So um, with Giroud yesterday, um, I mean, I don't think he played well. Um, he lost the ball eight times. That bothers me more than the chances because actually taken in isolation, I thought there was one bad miss in there. The one where he hits the crossbar, I look at that, his shirt's being pulled, he's stretching, stretching, and I look at that chance and I think, what else could he have done other than what he did? And he's really stretching to get there. He's not even facing the goal when he heads the ball. So that one, I think, he just did everything he could. Um, and then, you know, the volley from the corner, how on earth is that regarded as a bad miss? I think that I can only think of about three or four players in the world that would have put that away. That's an incredibly difficult chance. That's not even a quarter of a chance. It's only considered a chance because he came so close with it. That's an unbelievably difficult skill to hit a rising ball that's been walloped at you during a corner when there's about 15 players, 15, 16 players in the penalty area. That is not a good chance. That is just, he's caught that well and it's nearly gone in, so it's considered a missed chance. No, I, I, I don't consider that a missed chance. The one, the one he really got wrong was the head, the one he headed wide inside the six-yard box. Yeah. <laughs> that was the bad miss. The header after that was a consequence of that because if you look at the header after, he, what he does wrong with that is what Giroud often does wrong with his finishing. He tries to put too much power, you know, he tries to put too much conviction where it's just not needed. He's got the goals wide open. There's no one on the post. Doesn't even need to go in the corner really. Just connect and you know kind of position your body towards the corner of the goal. It will go just like he did at Man City, a similar chance, um, and he just kind of guided that in. Um, the header after that was not as easy, but it was a consequence of having missed that first chance. So having missed the target, he wanted to make make sure he got it on target, which he did, but he sacrificed some of the power to do that. So hmm. that, that one, I don't think it was as easy anyway. So for me, there was one bad miss in there. Okay. Um, one... I, I, I see your point, and, and maybe I'm being a little too harsh. I, that, that miss is the one that sticks in your mind, and then it yeah. colors your, your interpretation of a lot of the other things that happen. But I mean, is, is the problem also, I mean, we looked like a slow team, and obviously he's as slow as they come. But um, And by the way, I just want you to know something. At one point during the game, I was saying our best strategy right now, given the paucity of quality in midfield and lack of pace, would be to play long balls and set pieces and lump it up to Giroud. Because as much as it wasn't his day finishing-wise, he looked like our biggest threat in that respect. It didn't look like we were going to play our way through them. And right. I, I mean, Mesedoza was dropping balls on heads and creating chances on platters like nobody's business. I mean, he was sensational as he has been all season. Uh, part of the reason we won't be talking about him much is just because it's becoming more common that he's just great every game. But is the problem, um, uh, Tim, that Giroud just sort of occupies in a very static way the spaces that Alexis likes to take advantage of when he's running with the ball? Yeah, that, that I think that's that's one part of it. They're kind of incompatible in that 
Giroud's like a pivot. He likes that one-touch football. Sanchez doesn't play that. He likes lots and lots of touches, too many touches on some occasions. Um, you know, he likes people to make space for him because he likes to come inside and shoot. Actually, when Walcott's up there, Alexis becomes a second striker by necessity, not just because of Walcott's movement and the freedom it gives him. It kind of has to because Walcott can't do anything in the air. And actually, Alexis is a good physical presence. Obviously, when Giroud's in there, that's not needed either. Um, Alexis, you know, Giroud likes a cutback, and Alexis doesn't go to the byline. Um, so, I mean, they, they're just completely incompatible in many, many ways. Alexis doesn't really cross the ball, which, you know, would, would be great for a guy like Giroud. Um, so they just, uh, you know, all, all of their best qualities, and it's not the fault of either one player, it's just the way it is, just all of their best qualities are completely incompatible with one another. Um, and I do wonder if Alexis and Giroud are in the same forward line, whether Alexis should actually be on the right-hand side. Um, of what, about, what about playing the 10 behind Giroud? More like what he does for yeah. Chile. Yeah, yeah, he could do that. And actually, he, he did that a little bit last season as well. About this time last season, he started playing in that position. And that could work. Ozil, Ozil may not love it, but he can then be that winger who makes the fourth midfielder. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and then you have you have a, a Coughlin, um, Cazorla, Ozil, Alexis quadrant. Which would allow us to control games. A little um, bit more. So. And um, I think it also I think, takes a little of the other... pressure. Go ahead, go ahead, Paul. I was going to say, the other formation that works is when you have Bellerin on the right and he's getting to the byline, line, getting crosses in, yeah. because then he's shooting him into and maybe they miss him, come to Alexis, or Alexis feeds off the scraps. That's the, that's the only way I like it with the two of them, with Alexis on the left. Well, the, the thing we know is that the, the one player who always really benefits from Giroud playing is Ramsey, because Ramsey makes the furthest forward run beyond Giroud, and Giroud loves to play those flicks to him. I think Alexis could similarly benefit from that um, if you put him more central and let him play off, behind, of off of Giroud, right, and make that run beyond him. Giroud would love that. Right now it's not working. And that actually led me to a point that I wanted to raise, and I'll let you have first crack at it, Paul, is to, let's assume for just a minute we don't get anyone healthy. And let's also assume, even though you may not agree with me, just assume for a minute for the purposes of this discussion, that the only way this system works is with Ramsey on the right. It doesn't work with Ox. It doesn't work with Campbell. And it doesn't work with Debushi in there. Do do we have to change the system and try something different while these players are out? Maybe move Ozil to the wing and bring Alexis infield or play Alexis at center forward and, and bring Flamini on to play with Cock, move Cazorla up to the wing and keep... I mean, is it time to change the system... While we're because the only time I've seen this system really look effective, really, really work, is with Ramsey. And even in quote unquote not great form, it works really well with Ramsey. We can control a game better, and and Alexis uh, thrives. It also really works with Theo. I think less with Giroud. So while Theo's out and Ramsey's out, is it time to have a rethink about how we set this side up instead of just presuming we can still boss games and win games with the likes of Joel Campbell on the right and Giroud clogging up space for Alexis? Well, I mean, the manager was pretty confident on Ramsey being back after the international break, but I'll go with your scenario Thank of it, it takes him a while to come back or he needs to be played in slowly. Or he's or out again. He some point. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I think you've got to 
you know, I think part of our issue, yes, I think we had two issues yesterday. Uh, one of them was that energy flow we, we talked about. The, we were low on energy and they were coming into a North London derby. They'd been uh, planning for it. But they were planning, they knew how we would play and they knew how we would line up. So we'd become predictable. So if we're not on our game, it's okay being predictable if you're better than them, if you can execute and we couldn't. Um, so for that reason, you know, I, w- I would want to see ways in which we can get Alexis moved around because he's going to play. He's going to be costly with the ball if he's not being effective. You've got to move him around a bit, move him to the 10 spot. Even if it's just in mid-game, you, you start swapping wings. I mean, Campbell can play from the left and, and get crosses in with his left foot. We've got to move it around a bit without necessarily doing anything too dramatic. I mean, I hope in your scenario I'm allowed to get Bellerin back. You know, he's going to give us more options that, that get us to the byline again. Any so, scenario where we get anyone back is probably science fiction, but sure, go ahead. Yeah. You need somebody to get, to get in behind. If you're not getting in behind, we're so predictable at the moment and so cont- containable. And that's, the, your options are Bellerin, Campbell on the left, uh, Alexis on the right, uh, and in the center. Um, giving options for Ozil to run through and, uh, and make, uh, make those runs that kind of upset them by uh, going off in a diagonal off to the left but to the byline. Uh, or the, the other thing that works really well, even with this setup, is the Ozil-Cazorla-Sanchez uh, um, triangle on the left, out of which uh, divilment and trouble often follows and comes. So... You know, there are options in there, but we've got to be far less predictable than we were yesterday. We were very containable yesterday. I still think we were better than, than advertised by the media with this power shift crap. Mm-hmm. Um, and although we're not going to talk about Ozil because we just take it for granted, the one thing I would say about Ozil that I really appreciated yesterday in a game in which everybody else looked tired apart from maybe him. Uh, Giro may not have had a great game, but he didn't look tired. Uh, you know, Coquelin was another who looked full of beans. And Monreal, ha- I thought, had a pretty decent game. But Ozil, I thought, had big shoulders yesterday. Um, I mean, it wasn't a perfect game for him. I'm not saying he's Bastian Schweinsteiger at his finest from a leadership standpoint. He's not there yet. But, uh, I, but I'm looking beyond play. I think his presence, I, I think when things were really tough, he stood up. He looked like a guy who was pulling other people along, who who didn't get in the funk just because things weren't going. You know, he had, uh, what's his face, Dembele kicking his arse all over the field and mm-hmm. sliding into tackles and making his life miserable. But he kept playing through. I think he actually had a pretty, pretty good game at that point. Even when people were saying Dan Bailey had his number, I thought he was moving that around pretty good. And as they tired a little bit more, he really... Thank you, Stephen Hawking, for that contribution. Um, And, Paul, if you can even hear me, that's a joke because your last 30 seconds contribution sounded like Stephen Hawking. Tim, I assume you're still there and sounding like a human being? Yeah, I think so. Okay, good. So real quick then... Um, as we start to wind down now and get ready to say goodbye, thankfully, as the internet is starting to decide that we should, um, you know, is it, is it maybe just a little bit silly to assume that you can have a Ramsey come out of the squad and be replaced with a Campbell and have a Theo come out of the squad and be replaced with Giroud 
and that the same system is going to work, right? I mean, our replacement parts are not like for like replacements for the first choice parts. So doesn't that sort of push you to needing to, th to rethink how you want to set up the side when that's the case? Quite possibly, yeah. But then, but then again, I I, I do think that, um, this team's capable of um, a little bit of tactical adaptability. If you look at last season, we didn't necessarily play the same way uh, throughout the whole season. You, you look at how we played at, at Man City away, for example, and we almost played that kind of like a four-five-one, and we actually did play very genuine wingers in Chamberlain and, and Alexis, and it worked beautifully with kind of Ramsey coming into the centre and those two out wide, um, which if you're looking to set up to be a bit more solid, I, I think is a decent option. Um, so I do think the potential is there. I, you know, I, 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 but then again, it does look like... I don't think it's so much the quality of the replacements. I think it's more whether they fit in. Because I think, you know, in terms of individual quality you know Chamberlain is, is is a fantastic player but the question is more does he really fit into the team yet does he really get the team um I think Debussy is a fine right back I think people have gone well well overboard um even you know I know I know he's not played brilliantly in his games this season although I don't think he's played anywhere near as badly as people have said but it's it's not we don't suffer because Matthew Debussy is an awful right back. He's not. It's it's because the team kind of relies on a right back like Bellerin, which which Debussy isn't. Debussy's more like Sanya, which is why we bought him. But the team, the emphasis of the team has just changed. So I think that's more the concern. I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago. It's a real catch twenty two situation. What do you do about that? Do you just keep playing with, you know, the team and? Cross your, uh, you know, close your eyes and cross your fingers and hope, hope that you can get through it. Or do you try and mix it up a little bit, uh, where you can so that when you need to be able to mix it up because you haven't got certain players available that you can. And that's that's a really really difficult decision um, for the manager to take, and it's a really difficult to know how to manage that, especially because it's going to be really tight and every game so important and every team has players capable hurting you so it's such a delicate balance I, I think there is the potential for some adaptability in this team and I think we've even seen it this year like you look at the way we played at Newcastle uh, for example the way, we, the way we set up at Newcastle was, was quite different you know we had those three players behind Walcott really rotating around and and so I think the potential is there it's just a case of whether we make a contingency for it so that it fits more easily when we have to do it, mm -hmm. or whether it's just a case of us being forced into it. And, and at the moment, we were just missing a few too many players, I think. It was enough to get through Swansea, but the games after that, I think, were always going to be a bit of a struggle with the amount of players we had missing. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's interesting because if you look at the squad composition, the more natural, the most natural replacement for Ramsey, the way we're playing Ramsey is Wilshire. You know that doesn't work. The most natural replacement for a Theo might be Welbeck. Okay, well we don't have him. You know you go through the, the various positions. You say, all right, well if it's not Ramsey and it's not Wilshire, then it'd be Rosicky. We don't have him. You know, and, and at every step of the way, the squad has been composed of a lot of players who would be key contributors in the absence of a starter but who are themselves very frequently unavailable due to injury. 
And I think we've reached a threshold now where we have too many important players in the squad who are too often injured. You know, you can have a Jack Wilshire and say, we've invested a lot in him, we're going to stick with him. But can you have a Jack Wilshire and a Thomas Rosicki, you know, and a Theo Walcott and an Oxlade Chamberlain, you know, these and a Kieran Gibbs? How many players can you have in a squad who have long-term injury problems? And I, I think we may be at the point now where we have too many, and that's why suddenly Joel Campbell, you know, and, and is playing and Alex Awobi is on a bench for Bayern away and so on and so forth. Just in closing, Paul, uh, if your human voice is still with us, is it testing yeah. testing okay it's here um you can get one injured player back right after the international break who are you choosing oh wow um uh i won't give you my little list i'll probably go ramsey i think he's what we need most right now but but you know where my heart is yeah <laughs> yeah i i do you want you want to say theo don't you I do. And he, he might actually be the better choice because um, right now we need something fresh. But well, well that, doesn't some of this also gives us more stability, more options? And some of this depends on the matches, right? I mean, if you look at it, we're at West Brom, we're home to Dinamo Zagreb, we're at Norwich City. These are games where we're probably not going to be under a lot of pressure defensively, or at least you would think not. So that may factor in your decision-making as well. How about you, Tim? One player back after the international break. Who are you choosing? Uh, I'm going to throw you a slight curveball. I'm going to say Danny Welbeck, just because um, I think he can fill um, a couple of problem positions for us. He can play on the right. I think it'd be a fantastic option for us on the right. Um, he can play up front and share the load with Giroud as well. Um, I think Alexis enjoys, as much as Alexis enjoys playing with Theo, he enjoys playing with Welbeck as well. He's, he's best form last season came with Welbeck in the team. So I think I'd choose Welbeck just because of his kind of adaptability and looking at the games we've got coming up immediately. I think, you know, games like West Brom and Norwich away where you need you need to be able to kind of work hard um, and pull their defence all over the place a little bit, I, I think he'd be a decent option for those games. No, it's funny. I, I love that call because I think he could be such a hugely important player for us this season. We arguably miss him as much or more than anyone. Um, the bad news is, Tim, and I don't know how to break this to you, Danny Welbeck ain't coming back anytime soon. <laughs> um, I'd just like to say, if Tim's allowed to throw in a curveball, I'm going with Eduardo. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, why not? Because they're both as likely to be playing for Arsenal this season. Um I mean, that's that's the other really difficult thing, too, is that Welbeck is someone who I think finishing aside has so many qualities that could be important to us. But realistically, I don't think we'll see Welbeck this season. Um, and I'm not sure that we'll see Wilshire either. So it's it's disappointing, but we'll find out. Um, I was going to bring up transfers, but, you know, I don't have the stomach for it. It's an international oh, break. Let's take a boo. break. We'll get a chance to talk about January uh, when January comes around. And uh, we'll have a month to play the sound of crickets. Anyway, uh I think, a, look, a draw in a game where you play poorly and your squad stretched to the limit and you're going in an international break, especially a draw when you come from behind, right? I think it keeps momentum going to some extent. Uh, it's a fine recovery from what happened in midweek, and it keeps us level at the at the top of the table. So that's all good. Paul, thanks for coming on. Paul's on Twitter at Pausing in My Pants. Always a pleasure to speak to you and your Stephen Hawking voice. Thanks, guys. Woohoo. Woohoo. And Tim, find him on Twitter at Stilberto. 
You can also read him on Arsblog. You can read him a variety of places. And you can see him at the Emirates or away stadiums on match days uh, as well. And Tim, again, really really pleasure and appreciate your contribution to raising the the level of discourse here at the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, enjoy your two weeks off, everybody. Fingers crossed that we don't lose any more players. It's funny. I should have said, which player do you most want us to lose in the international break? Because that's more likely than getting anyone back. But we'll see what happens. Um, enjoy the two weeks. When we come back, it's... Uh, it's all about winning the league. I think that's I think that's what we're up to now. So my name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Hey, if you have a chance, please give us a review uh, on iTunes or wherever other reviews are allowed to be left. I would suggest giving us a five-star review, and then you can write all the nasty stuff in the comments as long as you leave a five-star so everybody wins, right? Um, but we really appreciate, appreciate you guys listening, and we will try to weave in um, uh, listener questions more going forward. We've had some scheduling difficulties with the pod but uh, listener questions will be coming back as a feature, so I apologize for that. In any case, enjoy your intro. We'll talk to you in two weeks.